You know what that sound means. It's time for the Michigan DNR's Wild Talk Podcast. Welcome to the Wild Talk Podcast, where representatives from the DNR's Wildlife Division chew the fat and shoot the scat about all things habitat, feathers, and fur. With insights, interviews, and your questions answered on the air, you'll get a better picture of what's happening in the world of wildlife here in the great state of Michigan. Welcome to Wild Talk. I'm Hannah Schauer, and hosting with me this episode is Rachel Leitner. Hi, Hannah. Hello. So today, a very exciting interview that we have. We'll be talking with Todd Grishke about the Arctic grayling restoration going on in the state. This happens to be a listener-suggested topic. Charles wrote in with uh, the suggestion to talk about the grayling restoration, and so we really appreciate uh, Charles providing this uh, suggestion for a topic. So if you have suggestions, certainly uh, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Yes. Thank you, Charles. This is a really exciting interview for us. We're really looking forward to it. So after the interview, we'll be answering your questions from the mailbag. But first, we'll kick things off with what is happening around the state. Pure Michigan hunt applications are on sale now. If you want your shot of what is considered Michigan's ultimate hunt, pick up a $5 application or two. There's no limit to the number you can buy. If you're one of the three lucky winners, you'll get a hunting prize package worth thousands, as well as licenses for elk, bear, spring and fall turkey, antlerless deer, and first pick at a managed waterfowl area for a reserved hunt. Purchase anywhere hunting licenses are sold or online at michigan.gov pmh. Now it's time for some updates on what's going on with the Wildlife Division around the state. Today we're going to start in the north. Hannah, what's going on in the UP? All right. Well, staff in the Upper Peninsula want to remind our listeners that there are still a few days left to apply for the UP Deer Habitat Improvement Grants. So keep in mind, applications must be postmarked by March 6th. The UP Deer Habitat Improvement Partnership Initiative is a cooperative grant program offered by the Wildlife Division. Now in its 12th year, more than $850,000 in hunter license dollars has been invested into deer habitat improvement projects through this program. Over the last 12 years, almost 100 projects have been completed and thousands of acres of deer habitat have been improved. In addition, project partners have contributed nearly half a million dollars in matching funds, which has helped to grow the program benefits for wildlife. Groups eligible for these grants include organizations with a formal mission to promote wildlife conservation and or hunting, such as sportsmen's clubs, conservation districts, land conservancies, industrial landowners with more than 10,000 acres, or private land affiliations where two or more unrelated persons jointly own 400 or more acres. Grants target projects on land ownerships other than state-owned lands. Private individual, private industrial, school forest, federal, conservancy, and other lands are eligible for these grants. The maximum amount of individual grants is $15,000, and the minimum is $2,000, and they do require a 25% match. 
The projects should produce tangible deer habitat improvements, build long-term partnerships between the DNR and the outside organizations, and showcase the project benefits to the public. Previous projects funded under the initiative have focused on improving winter deer habitat by planting long-lived conifers and scarification for conifer regeneration. Summer range deer habitat projects have included planting hard-mast oak trees, wildlife orchards, creation of hunter walking trails, rehabilitation of historic wildlife openings, native prairie restoration. Uh, So all different kinds of projects have been funded with this grant money. Some past grant recipients have also facilitated youth hunting and veteran opportunities on these improved private lands. So again, if you plan to apply, project applications must be postmarked by Friday, March 6th, so coming up very soon, and successful applicants will be notified by Wednesday, April 1st. The complete grant application package is available on the DNR website at michigan.gov slash DNR grants. That sounds like a really great program. What an excellent way to spend money. Yes, there are a lot of great opportunities um, in addition to the UP grants, but that's the uh, application period that's going on right now. So we really want to make sure people who are interested Uh, get their applications in before our time runs out. All right, so let's jump below the bridge. Rachel, what do we have going on in the northern lower region? Well, over in Ross Common County, biologists and staff are scouting out black bear den sites as part of a long-running research project. Cool. It's super cool. Uh, This awesome project allows us to gather biological information on bears uh, to assist in managing their population. So after a den site is located with a potential bear inside, Biologists evaluate whether that bear is a good candidate for the project, and if so, they'll be fitted with a radio tracking collar so that we can track their movements and reproduction in the following years. So this year, there are seven sows with collars, and we're currently tracking them and locating their den sites, and so most of them will get a special visit from DNR staff sometime soon. These bears uh, will most likely be refitted for new collars since they're growing and They might need a bigger collar or they just might need to be repaired or replaced. And then um, data will be collected from those bears. So out of those seven, there is one that has newborn cubs this year. Uh, So that sow has yearling cubs and will also collect some information from them as well. Once we've finished fitting those collars, collecting hair and tooth samples, uh, the bears will be put back into their den to resume their long winter slumber. Oh, very cool. I think it'd be a lot of fun to... Uh, visit one of those den sites uh, with our staff. Um, and you know what else is cool about uh, some of the bears that have uh, the radio collars um, are a year in a life of a Michigan black bear education curriculum for middle schoolers has some of this tracking data so the students can actually sort of you know follow the bear's movements around uh, on a map and see where the bears go when they're up and about in the sum- spring and summer months. Uh, So we do use this uh, data for other fun projects, too. Yes. What an awesome use of data. Not only are you using it for biological scientific decisions, but you're also using them for education and young children. That's amazing. All right. And so that's what's going on in Northern Lower. Hannah, what's going on in the Southeast region? Alrighty. So in the Southeast, waterfall seasons have ended. So our wetland game areas or wetland wonders have been quiet as of late. Uh, But we are looking forward to seeing lots of folks out at our spring birding tours, which will be held in late March and early April. 
We'll be telling you more about these great tours later on in the show. So for now, we'll just say that they're awesome. So don't miss them. <laughs> uh, Southeast region staff have been making improvements to some upland hunting areas by removing invasive species like buckthorn, honeysuckle, and autumn olive, and also building brush piles for rabbitat, also known as rabbit habitat, but it's way more fun to say rabbitat. <laughs> the forests and forest edges of Southeast Michigan can be great places for hunting small game like rabbits and squirrels. So be sure to head out to a place like the Waterloo State Recreation Area or the Lapeer State Game Area for some awesome small game hunting opportunities before your base license expires on the 31st. All right. So finally, Rachel, how about an update from the Southwest region? Absolutely. So it is definitely March in Southwest Michigan, and it feels like we've had a really long winter without a lot of snow. So it's just been gray and I'm kind of going stir crazy. So if you're anything like me and you're going a little stir crazy and you need a good excuse to get out to some new areas or learn some new cool stuff, Southwest has some cool stuff going on this month. Uh, over in Montcalm County at the Flat River State Game Area, there's a new path that was just put in on the area to complete uh, the north and south ends of their new turkey tract. So if you're not familiar with turkey tracks, uh, there are these areas on public land that have been managed for really awesome turkey hunting opportunities. The turkey track is really well laid out. Uh, there's a good evident trail that's there. And it has a great ease of access, so hunters of all types can get out onto this area. Um, and now the latest section that was just finished is a path that's carved out to connect the two existing trails. So you can go for a longer hike. Uh, you can really scout out the area. So spring turkey season uh, doesn't start for a little bit yet, but now is the perfect time to be getting into the woods to scout out your spot and just enjoy some time outside. The Flat River State Game Area is a really beautiful spot, and this particular new path takes you through some really diverse areas. There's some dry, forested, high uplands, and then there's some low wetland spots, and it opens up to this huge open field uh, with a bench that was just put in that makes for a really great opportunity for wildlife watching. Sounds fantastic. It is. And the wildlife that comes through there is the charismatic wildlife that we really love to watch. So there's tons of turkeys and deer and songbirds, and it's a great spot. So if you want to learn more about this area or visit the Flat River State Game Area, you can find more at the Turkey Tracks website, which we can link in the show notes. So if you're looking for something indoors, you should come join us at the Pierce Cedar Creek Institute in Barry County on March 21st. March 21st is a Saturday, and it is the Barry County Science Festival. It's free and open for everyone to join. There will be tons of hands-on science experiments and demonstrations. And from what I hear, a giant blow-up solar system for visitors to walk through. So there's a lot of really great activities for people of all ages to go and enjoy and learn something new, hopefully. Uh, the Wildlife Division will be there with lots of our partners. And if you haven't been to the Pierce Cedar Creek Institute, it is an incredible facility and they do a lot with connecting people to science and the outdoors. So I'm really excited to attend the event and hopefully some of you will be too. It sounds like another fun time. Mm -hmm. That's all we have from around the state. Next, we'll be chatting with Todd Grishke. There are many camping and lodging opportunities available in Michigan state parks. 
When you choose State Park Campgrounds, you get more than just a campsite. State Parks offer a diverse range of recreational opportunities including hands-on instructional classes, nature programs, places to fish, boat launches, family-friendly events, and much more. Reservations can be made six months in advance, so why wait? Visit MIDNRreservations.com or call 1-800-44-PARKS to make a reservation. Welcome back to Wild Talk. Today we are joined by Todd Grishke from the Fisheries Division, um, and he's going to tell us a little bit more about the Arctic grayling. But first, Todd, uh, first of all, thanks for being here. We're really glad to have you. Sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And um, before we dive into the Arctic grayling, could you tell us a little bit about your uh, background in fisheries and your current role within the DNR? Sure. I came over to Department of Natural Resources in 1998. I used to work for Michigan United Conservation Clubs for nine years prior to that. Uh, and since 98, I've had several different positions within fisheries division. I was in the regulatory affairs unit for a while uh, dealing with fishing regulations. I moved into the Lake Huron Basin Coordinator role for several years, and I'm now the assistant chief of the division. So it's been an exciting ride. I bet. Sounds, Sounds like, like it. it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So I'm sure all of our listeners are just dying to know more about the Arctic grayling and what's going on with that particular fish. So for a little background for our listeners, could you tell us uh, a little bit about this fish that used to be found in Michigan um, and kind of its history in the state and why there's no longer a large population here? Sure. Arctic grayling are very unique in that they were native to only two states in the lower 48, Michigan and Montana. And it for decades Back in the 1800s into the early 1900s, they were very popular both commercially and recreationally. What was happening, though, during that time was a lot of the logging practices, uh, which at the time we were essentially cutting many of our forests and using the streams to transport those logs down to mills where they were processed, and um, that whole process took its toll on our river systems, not just Arctic grayling. Many species were impacted by that, but Arctic grayling especially, it literally destroyed stream habitats, uh, the river banks, the vegetation was gone, high loads of sediment, and of course, lots of logs. Uh, that in combination with the reintroduction of other native species that were disappearing at the same time, and stocking of non-native fish, such as brown trout, at that time was of high interest, and a lot of fish were stocked. So in combination with a lot of unregulated fishing during the late 1800s, the logging that I mentioned and habitat destruction, it essentially wiped out Arctic grayling, and by 1936, the last Arctic grayling was captured uh, in one of our streams, and we've considered them extirpated since that time. Extirpated meaning they're not extinct from the landscape. There's, they still exist in Montana, in Alaska, and other parts of the country, but they are no longer in Michigan. So now it's 
uh, for many different reasons, it's a good opportunity to look at reintroduction. Gotcha. So this is the case, I think, with a lot of our um, threatened or endangered species or other species that have been extirpated, that combination of overharvest and habitat loss. Uh, it definitely sounds like a similar situation with the grayling. Very much so. And we have now available to us not just history to tell us what we did wrong and what we can do better, but there's also new technology available uh, through efforts of other states, specifically Montana, that have been successful in reintroducing grayling. So technology has kind of caught up, uh, fish culture has caught up, and of course, interest and momentum has caught up for Arctic grayling. So, uh, Speaking of the interest, um, why is the DNR attempting to restore this native species right now? Like what, what interest has there been that has kind of piqued this resurgence and interest in the Arctic grayling. Yeah, well, I mentioned some, you know, the technology piece. I also mentioned some of that interest. I think that there's kind of this, a uh, lot of pieces are coming together at the same time. Montana wanted to reintroduce Arctic grayling into several of their streams, and they're looking at now a full decade of success. And they utilize what's called RSIs, or remote site incubators. Essentially, they're five-gallon buckets that are placed in streams that uh, allow Arctic grayling eggs to be placed in them. And as those eggs hatch, the young fry spill over into the stream environment, and then they're imprinted where, where they're hatched and they grow into adults in that very location. So that has been very successful because it's a naturally reproducing stock over time. That technology is really what we're looking at, and we, we watched them for several years and watched them being successful and thought, you know, it's about time for us to explore that here in Michigan. The same time, and, and this going back to probably 2010 through 2013, um, uh, Michigan Tech University and Little River Band of Ottawa Indians did some research on stream habitat in the Upper Manistee. The Upper Manistee was one of the many streams in the Lower Peninsula that had Arctic grayling, and they did that stream evaluation with the intent of evaluating whether or not that habitat is still conducive to Arctic grayling. So that was 2013 when that was published. And in 2014, 2015, we started looking at a collaboration with them for uh, Arctic grayling rehabilitation. And that turned into a foundational partnership between the state of Michigan and the Little River Band of Ottawa Indians, which was formalized in 2016. Since then, the partnership has grown to more than 45 individuals, universities, agencies, uh, cities, uh, foundations, uh, corporations. Um, so many, many people now have focused on this effort and built a lot of momentum for reintroduction. So, so the technology's there, the timing was right. The momentum, you know, culturally, uh, it's a very important fish culturally and historically. And so everything kind of came together and, and away we go. There we go. 
Uh, so before we jump into, I, I know we want to hear a little bit more about the partners, um, but I'm really curious. So you mentioned these buckets for the eggs and you wanting the uh, fry to imprint. Is that because the Arctic grayling uh, is a migratory species? Does it move about the river and come back to the same place to spawn? Or That's a great question. A lot of our salmonids, uh, uh, Chinook, coho, uh, steelhead, brown trout, a lot of them are migratory. They move into our streams or tributaries at some point uh, in their life cycle, but then they move back out to the Great Lakes. Uh, in this case, what's important about imprinting for Arctic grayling, which are not necessarily migratory to the Great Lakes, mm -hmm. they do migrate within river systems okay. uh, for different parts of their life cycle. But what's important about the imprinting is that when we stock fish that are raised in a hatchery system, they don't necessarily home in on the location that they're stocked, unless unless they're stocked at the exact time that their body is imprinting. But if they're stocked after that, they have no real concept of, of that's home. Right. So, so with Arctic grayling, the whole concept here is that we are not moving into this reintroduction effort thinking it's a stocking event every year. Mm. We're going into this trying to establish a self-reproducing uh, population. So for them to imprint in that location is critical because they will use that as their home base. And then the fry, the eggs that they produce as adults, uh, will also be imprinted in that stream. So uh, yeah, we're we're hoping to kickstart this by utilizing those those RSIs, those buckets, and that technology. But at some point, we're hopeful that the fish themselves are able to take off on their own and establish themselves in the stream. Gotcha. How interesting. Uh, so it, yeah, it sounds like the locations of the imprints and the RSIs is really important. Um, are you doing those releases in the areas where grayling were? traditionally found or are you moving into new areas? Yeah. So in the action plan, which is really the strategic plan for this whole effort, and that document was produced after that foundational partnership took place in 2016 and then took about a year for us to put that together. In that action plan, we identify that our goal, one of our goals, is to reestablish Arctic grayling in those areas where they were historically found. That doesn't mean that every single stream that held grayling is going to be able to contain grayling. It's just that we want to focus on the streams that we know historically held Arctic grayling and give us the best chance of success. So a lot of the upfront work that we're doing right now is looking at that stream habitat and evaluating it to see what the current conditions are, what is the temperature regime, the flow, the substrate, the competition with other species. What does that look like today? And is that still a location that would work for Arctic grayling, considering it's much different than it was back in the late 1800s? So our initial attempts are gonna focus on just a few streams, and over time we may see that grow but it will most likely never reach the number 
that historically held Arctic grayling, and uh, it probably won't be that many overall just because our river systems have changed so much. Um, and, and just out of curiosity, traditionally where were grayling found? Are they a, a regionally based fish? So are they usually only found in the northern lower peninsula of Michigan or the upper peninsula? That's, yeah, that's, that's a great question because a lot of people think that they were throughout the state, including the upper peninsula. But for most of our work, uh, we found that they were concentrated in the northern part of the lower peninsula. So north of the Muskegon River, uh, up around the tip into the Osable, for example. So some of your some of your well-known rivers, uh, the Osable, uh, the Maple, the Jordan, the Manistee, uh, the Boardman, these are all high-quality trout streams that historically supported very large populations of Arctic grayling. In fact, the Osable River has a town, uh, Grayling, uh, that was named after the fish. There were so many fish in these rivers. In fact, it was the dominant salmonid. Uh, so, yeah, but the, the northern part of the lower peninsula is where these were found mostly. And although the last, one of the last fish that was captured was in the Otter River in the west end of the upper peninsula, we believe that that fish was there most likely due to a stocking event and not a natural population. Gotcha. I was going to ask uh, if it was a chicken or an egg type of conversation when it comes to naming the grayling, if the city came first or if the city was named after the fish. <laughs> so I'm glad you touched on that. Um, just to bring it back to talk about some of the other organizations and partners in this process, it seems like there's a lot of people invested in this restoration project. Um, could you highlight what kind of our role is and, and some of those partners who've been helping at the restoration? Yes, and it is large. In fact, it's almost overwhelming the amount of support that we've received on this project because 45 partners in anything is, uh, is, is amazing. And, and many of those partners have been instrumental in helping us with fundraising, with some of the research on the streams, the RSI work, which is being done by the Little River Band of Ottawa Indians. Um, but the, the fundraising component, which we haven't touched on yet, but it, that's a very big piece of this puzzle because we set out to do this uh, reintroduction initiative with um, recognizing it was going to be an expensive venture, but also recognizing that we could not do it ourselves. In fact, we've put $25,000 towards the effort as a department, but we are relying solely on outside contributions to make this work. Our fundraising goal is $1.2 million, and we've raised about $700,000 so far. A lot of that is in the form of big donations. Uh, Consumers Energy Foundation was a big upfront contributor for some of the stream work. Uh, the Wanger Foundation uh, was has contributed hun several hundred thousand dollars to both uh, the stream work as well as research that's being done at Michigan State University. Uh, PhD student Nicole Watson is doing some work at Michigan State to help look at and address competition between Arctic grayling 
and the fish that are in our streams now, including brook trout and brown trout. Um, so, so those partners are helping in a lot of different ways. And going into 2020 now, looking at stream work and stream evaluations, um, Little River Band, again, is there. Little Traverse Bay Band uh, of Odawa Indians is, is going to be helping us. University of Michigan is helping us. Uh, Grand Valley State University. So you can see this is just spilling over into a lot of different areas, a lot of different interest groups, organizations coming together for a common cause. And that's uh, uh, it's very exciting and it's also critical to success. So with uh, the restoration specifics, um, when we talk about reintroducing wildlife species to a certain area, oftentimes we make modifications to the habitat. Um, so what are some of the specific types of work we're doing in Michigan? Can we modify watersheds and river streams, or is it mostly uh, these remote site incubators we're placing? Yeah, we're not heading into this to modify the habitat to accommodate Arctic grayling. We are seeing if the habitats that have been modified as a result of our just human changes, human-induced changes, whether that's dams, culverts, roadways, uh, reintroduction or, or stocking of other species, uh, all these things and changes to the landscape have, have uh, made the streams that historically held Arctic grayling much different. And so we're evaluating that, we're measuring that, and we're saying, are they still viable streams for Arctic grayling? No changes necessarily. We're, we're just hoping that there are stretches or reaches of streams that are still capable of supporting Arctic grayling through their entire life cycle. What fry need, small fish in the stream, is very different from what adults need. So adults are going to need to move to find food or other resources, temperature, whatever it may be, sometime in their life cycle. And so we need to find those streams or areas that can support that entire life life history of Arctic grayling. Um, and that, um, again, is critical because of this reliance on self-sustaining populations. We're not going to be relying on hatcheries. Although we're relying on them to kickstart the program, we're not relying on them long-term. We're going to maintain uh, at two of our facilities Arctic grayling broodstock. And so that means we're going to be holding adults over time and we're going to be taking eggs and milk from those adults and taking those eggs and putting them into the streams to start the program. In order for that to happen, one of our partners is actually the Alaska Fish and Game Department. And about two years ago, we finally decided that the best place to get that that foundational genetic stock was from Alaska, the Chena River. And the reason we did that is that that population is 100% natural. It has never been stocked. It's as genetically diverse as is possible in the wild. And we thought drawing from that to take our broodstock uh, source would would be the best thing. So Starting in 2019, we took the first eggs from the Chena River with the help of Alaska Fish and Game, 
transported them back. Uh, they were reared at Michigan State University as part of Nicole's project that I mentioned. And then we transferred them to one of our facilities and they're now in quarantine. And uh, that's those fish are going to be moved up to Marquette, uh, um, one of our other fish production facilities. And then coming in 2020 is the next batch of brood stock to kind of reinvigorate that genetics uh, into our brood stock. So. That's a long ways for fish to travel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, so I guess my last question is, what's the end goal here? So you mentioned you have a management plan. Uh, what would you consider restored? Are you looking for a specific population number or a certain amount of streams that have a viable population? I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of goals in this project, and there's not really a ultimate end game here. Uh, because evaluating success or defining success is really up to uh, the, your perspective. Naturally sustaining populations of Arctic grayling is the goal. We, we do want this program to be self-supporting. But does that mean one stream, five streams, 20 streams? That's undefined. Some people define success uh, as being able for anglers to go out and capture Arctic grayling as part of our complex of fish that we can fish for now. And that certainly would be a fantastic outcome and a goal, but it's not necessarily the only way to measure success. So along the way, we're finding in this that incremental uh, success is really what we need to stay focused on. Getting the brood stock established, that's a success story getting the money raised so that we could install ultraviolet equipment at Odin that allowed us to actually bring the eggs in from Alaska and raise them. That was a huge success and a milestone. Um, utilizing the RSI, RSI technology in Michigan will be a success because it hasn't been done yet, and that remains to be seen. So, taking the first eggs from uh, mature Arctic grayling and putting them into the streams, that's going to be a, a measure of success. You're getting my point here that there's just all of these different steps. And one thing that we have stressed through this whole effort, it is truly a marathon, not a sprint. This is not a two-year project. This is potentially a 10, 15, or even a 20-year project. Um, so, it has to be measured in that, with that um, concept in mind, as opposed to we're going to be done with this shortly. So, uh, yeah, a lot of lot of things can define success, and we are really excited that we're still at this point where we're feeling like the momentum's still building, and we're starting to recognize some success in the program. Absolutely. And if there were some groups or individuals who wanted to learn more or potentially donate to you guys, is there a website they can go to to learn more? There is. It's migrailing.org. And that website, we maintain that with uh, our partnerships, with some of the research activities that we've been doing, a description of this program. We also have a fiduciary uh, the Petoskey Harbor Springs Area Community Foundation, and that they have willingly stepped up and said, yes, we will serve as the fiduciary. They're a 501c3. 
uh, people, individuals, organizations, corporations can donate directly to them, and they're um, helping to administer the the monies. Of course, uh, the De Michigan Department of Natural Resources can take direct gifts, and we have received direct gifts uh, to support the Michigan Arctic Grayling Initiative. Uh, but the best way to to learn that is to get to that migrailing.org site. And there are links available to both uh, the Petoskey Harbor Springs Area Community Foundation as well as uh, uh, information on how to donate directly to this effort. Perfect. And we'll be sure to include a link to, to that website in our show notes for folks as well. All right. Well, thank you, Todd, so much for joining us today and providing all that awesome information on this really valuable project. We really appreciate your time. No problem. Thanks for having me. Well, stick around. Next up, we'll be answering your questions from the mailbag. It's that time of year again. Coyote breeding season. Don't be surprised if you see more coyote activity during the next couple of months. Coyotes are found statewide and can survive just about anywhere. Coyotes can become comfortable living near people, particularly if there are food sources available. Remove attractants like trash bins, bird feeders, and pet foods. Take advantage of a coyote's natural fear of humans and scare them off if you see them. Remember, coyotes can be good neighbors to have because they eat plenty of rodents. Welcome back. Now it is time for us to answer your questions from our mailbag. One, two, three. Adam Roden asking when the 2020 hunting and fishing licenses would be available for purchase. The 2020 license year has started as of March 1st. And so now you can purchase your new licenses, such as your base hunting license, uh, your fishing license, whatever else you might need for this year. If you've purchased any licenses or permits already, you may have noticed that the DNR has moved to a new, more advanced system for selling hunting and fishing licenses, applications, and ORV and snowmobile permits online or at retail agent locations statewide. This new system went live in mid-February and replaces the old 26-year-old system, allowing us to upgrade license sales technology and provide new equipment to licensed retailers. So if you've used the system or you plan to soon, we hope that you have an easy time buying your new hunting and fishing licenses and then have a good time using them here in 2020. You can purchase your Michigan licenses online at michigan.gov forward slash DNR licenses. Yep, absolutely. I think the new system comes with some additional features for folks as they're purchasing licenses. So it should make the whole buying process a little bit easier and more streamlined for you. Excellent. Get into the woods and waters a little faster. Absolutely. All right. So I've got a question here from Amber who wrote in asking about uh, the removal of a bat colony in her attic. Uh, so if you have found a bat in the living quarters of your home or it may have come into physical contact with a person or pet, you need to be sure to contact your county health department right away to determine if the bat needs to be submitted for disease testing. Uh, and this is because it is possible for bats, like all mammals, to carry rabies. And you should never try to touch or handle a bat without adequate protection because there's no way to tell just by looking at it uh, if it's sick or not. So additional information about rabies and what to do with a bat in your living quarters um, or that you may have come into contact with can be found at michigan.gov rabies. Uh, if you just need assistance in removing uh, bats or a bat colony from your home or building, 
such as in this case, if they're just in your attic and haven't get, gotten into your living quarters at all, you can contact a wildlife damage and nuisance control permittee to remove any bats. So these companies and organizations are permitted by the DNR to utilize a variety of control measures, both lethal and non-lethal techniques, to remove bats, including those large colonies of multiple bats, from homes or buildings. So those are the folks that can assist in that regard. But again, for any bats that have been found in the living quarters of your home and or may have come into physical contact with a person or pet, you'll want to get in touch with your county health department to determine if that bat needs to be submitted to them for disease testing. It's just better to be safe in that regard. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's very helpful information. I feel like you get bats in your house every once in a while and you need to know this stuff. Yep, I've had a few uh, in my house in the past, and luckily they didn't come into contact with us, and we were able just to kind of open the door or the window and wait for them to find their way out. Um, but certainly it's better to be safe than sorry if you're not sure. Okay, and I've got uh, one final question here. Uh, Jacob says he's interested in hunting on haplands and wonders if they can be used for small game hunting. Um, and haplands, or the Hunter Access Program Properties, are private lands that are open to public hunting. And uh, what happens is the landowner who signs up to open their private property to public hunters will designate what type of game may be hunted on their property. Uh, and many properties are open for small game hunting. So you can find a current listing of all the HAP or Hunter Access Program lands and what hunt type they are open to by visiting michigan.gov slash H-A-P. And please remember when visiting Haplands to register at the property headquarters before hunting on the property. And then you'll know if there are any permits available that day for that property because there's a limited amount uh, each day and it's first come, first served. So uh, you'll just want to keep that in mind. Again, additional information about each property and what what they're open to and uh, additional HAP hunting land rules and information can be found at michigan.gov slash HAP. All right, as we zip this segment to a close, remember, if you have questions about wildlife or hunting, you can call 517-284-WILD, email us at dnr-wildlife at michigan.gov, or stop by one of our offices. Your question could be featured on the next mailbag. Did you know that Michigan lies where the Atlantic and Mississippi migratory flyways intersect? This brings over 340 species of birds to Michigan each year. Follow My Birds on Facebook to learn more about our feathered friends, year-round guided bird walks, stewardship events, and community science opportunities near you. My Birds is an education and outreach program created by Audubon Great Lakes in the Michigan DNR. Search My Birds on Facebook. That's M-I Birds. March is usually when cabin fever reaches its peak in our great state, and folks are looking for ways to get outside and enjoy the beginning signs of spring in Michigan. Yep, definitely. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mentioned it earlier, and it's so true. I feel like I'm going stir-crazy. It won't be too long, and we'll be hearing spring peepers and chorus frogs and plenty of bird song. It'll be fabulous. I love the spring frog calls. Those are probably my favorite part of spring. In addition to frogs, nothing says spring like the calls of red-winged blackbirds and sandhill cranes. 
And as I mentioned earlier, some great places to hear those sounds are Michigan's Wetland Wonders. And Michigan's Wetland Wonders include the seven premier managed waterfall hunt areas in the state. Those are Fenville Farm Unit at the Allegan State Game Area, the Fish Point State Wildlife Area, the St. Clair Flats State Wildlife Area on Harsons Island, Muskegon County Wastewater Facility, Nanquim Point State Wildlife Area, Point Moulier State Game Area, and the Shiawassee River State Game Area. The highlights of these birding tours may include diving and dabbling ducks in full breeding plumage, trumpeter and tundra swans, osprey, bald eagles, sandhill cranes, and so much more. The tours will be led by wildlife biologists, MyBird staff, and volunteers from Ducks Unlimited and local Audubon groups. The tours may include a sneak peek driving tour into refuge areas that are normally closed. So this seems pretty exclusive and awesome. Yes, definitely. It is pretty cool to be able to caravan around these areas that are usually closed to vehicle traffic, especially at some of the larger state game areas like Shiawassee River and Point Moulier. Bird tours will be held in late March and early April. All these tours will begin at 9 a.m. except for Maple River, who like to get a little bit of an earlier start at 8 a.m. Fish Point, Fenville Farm, and Maple River will all be hosting their tours on March 28th, uh, which is a Saturday. So book it on your calendars. Mm-hmm. And on Saturday, April 4th, Nanquin Point, Point Millier, and Harsons Island will have their tours. Shiawassee River will host theirs on Sunday, April 5th. And then Muskegon Wastewater on Saturday, April 11th. Mm-hmm. So Muskegon Wastewater is actually a really great place to see northern shovelers and ruddy ducks in huge numbers in the spring. Like thousands and thousands of birds. It's like a floating feather mat and it's really unique. Most tours will meet at the State Game Area's headquarters building. Uh, so please dress for the weather and bring your binoculars or spotting scopes if you have them, just in case you want to spot something from a long range. Yes, and don't forget your boots as well. The ground might be a little bit muddy, being as it's spring. Uh, we'll include a link to our show notes with more information about our spring birding tours, so be sure to check that out if you are uh, interested in coming on one of these little adventures with us. Yeah, we would really encourage you to visit uh, and like the MI Birds Facebook page as well, which also has information about these birding tours as well as awesome information about Michigan's diverse and exciting bird life. We really can't wait for spring, if you hadn't noticed. And uh, we cannot wait to see you at one of these wetland wonders. Yeah, so that wraps up another month. Uh, We'll see you right back here in April for another episode of the Wild Talk podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Yep, we'll see you then. This has been the Wild Talk Podcast, your monthly podcast airing the first of each month and offering insights into the world of wildlife across the state of Michigan. You can reach the Wildlife Division at 517-284-9453 or dnr-wildlife at michigan.gov.